Whoa, my favorite place on Earth. Gosh, my favorite place on Earth. My favorite place on Earth. Boy, you know, I sort of like any place on Earth, you know, is pretty good with me. Amen, hallelujah, children. Here we are once again. The earth wants you. So says the Church of Stop Shopping. I have Reverend Billy right here with my co-host and news anchor of the natural world, Savitri D. I greet you, Savi. Good morning. Amen. Well, what kind of, what kind of fabulous worship service do we have today here? We've got the monoculture looming, and then in the monoculture, all these zigzagging uh, white vans with Blackwater USA types driving them, uh, hauling our neighbors out of their living rooms while their children cling to their legs. The monoculture and state-sanctioned violence coming from two sides can we uh, can we uh, resolve this contradiction can we find can we find a relationship between the two forms of violence Ben Shepard is here Mark Noonan is here they're sitting here side by side shoulder to shoulder they're proud of a new book they put out called Brooklyn Tides the fall and rise of a global borough praise be we've got the gray wolf to howl for us <laughs> right after you're done with your interview there will be howling wolves I mean, do you like that do you appreciate the we have the music of the stop shopping choir what a difference apocalypse makes which brings us back to the title the earth wants you especially when we think the earth is ending let's go now to the news from the natural world Savitri D reporting Welcome to News from the Natural World. I'm Savitri D. A Pakistani city has set a global record temperature for the month of April. The southern city of Nawabasha recorded a high of 50.2 degrees Celsius on Monday, 123 degrees Fahrenheit. Pakistan's farmers are struggling to bring in a harvest as the country's weather patterns change as a result of climate change. Warm spring weather now coming as early as March has led to fruit trees flowering before bees arrive to pollinate them or fruit and vegetables ripening at unusual times. 34 meteorological stations broke temperature records for March this year in most parts of the country, with temperatures sometimes more than 10 degrees Celsius above the monthly long-term average. In the last week, hotter-than-average temperatures have killed at least 65 people in just three days in Karachi, Pakistan. The heat wave has also reached central and northern India. Green blood is highly unusual, but is the hallmark of a group of lizards in New Guinea. The muscles, bones, and tongues of these lizards appear bright lime green due to high levels of biliverdin, 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 or a green bile pigment, which is toxic and causes jaundice. Surprisingly, these lizards remain healthy with levels of green bile that are 40 times higher than the lethal concentration in humans. 
Alaska. Mobile is yeah. okay for them. Alaska Airlines is phasing out single-use, non-recyclable p- plastic stir straws in favor of compostable versions made of white birch, the airline announced on Monday. And Russia has unveiled the world's first floating nuclear power plant. <coughs> the academic oh, <laughs> Lomonosov. That's comforting. It has already been moved 4,000 kilometers, no. kilometers across four seas, the Baltic, northern Norwegian, and Barents Sea from St. Petersburg to Murmansk. Now at Murmansk, academic Lomonosov will be loaded full with nuclear fuel and then will sail to the town of Pevik in Russia's Far East. There, it will be connected to the grid to become the world's only floating nuclear power plant and the northernmost nuclear installation in the world. Jesus Christ. The nuclear power plant will replace a coal-fired power plant and an aging nuclear power plant, which have been supplying over 50,000 people with electricity. Oh, that, that, there's one outside the window. The nuclear plant by the window here will reduce the Atlantic carbon Avenue. footprint in the Arctic by tens of thousands of tons of CO2 emissions every year. An international team of researchers have analyzed multiple studies that collectively show a clear association between human activity and cancer risk in wild animals. Because we modify the environment in a way that can cause cancer in wildlife, humans can be defined as an oncogenic species. Human activity is causing many wildlife species to also experience changes in diet and habitat, but how this affects cancer rates has not yet been well explored. No more than 2,000 Cape parrots are left in South Africa. <clears throat> and wildlife protections on black bears, coyote pups, and other Alaskan animals are likely to be stripped away under a new National Park Service rule formally proposed Monday. The rule aims to reverse Obama-era protections from 2015 that prohibited certain hunting practices that otherwise were allowed by Alaska. The practices include the killing of all black bears by dogs, the hunting of caribou from powered motorboats, hunting of wolves or coyotes and their pups during denning season months, and using bait to attract and shoot brown bears. All right. Some good news. Under the new Park Service rules, states would be allowed to determine their own protections and could remove previous federal protections for wildlife. A recent study that evaluated the microbes and arthropods found in the treetop beds that chimpanzees make each night uh, was released, and it appears that chimpanzees keep tidier sleeping arrangements than humans do. Mm-hmm. Well, cleaner, speak for yourself. Cleaner huh? at night. 69% of Americans think the government isn't doing enough to safeguard water quality, while 64% say the government isn't doing enough to protect air quality. Two-thirds of Americans say the government is doing too little to reduce the effects of climate change. All right. Yeah. In Denmark, people use an average of four single-use plastic bags a year, compared to one a day in the U.S. And the Australian government officially declared two species of recently described antichinuses a mouse-like marsupial, as endangered. <coughs> Discovered last year, endangered this week. The species are famed for their marathon mating sessions that leave the males so exhausted that they die. Both species occur only in high-altitude forests. I don't like that. And are threatened by climate change, habitat loss, and threats from feral cats, cattle, and horses. The humanitarian crisis in Venezuela has become a crisis for wildlife and zoo animals as a hungry and desperate population hunt wild species for food. 
Bitcoin is on track to consume 0.5% of the world's electricity by the end of the year. Bitcoin's energy footprint has more than doubled in the last six months and is expected to double again by the end of the year. By late next year, Bitcoin could be consuming more electricity than all the world's solar panels currently produce, about 1.8% of global electricity. That would effectively erase decades of progress on renewable energy. A fluctuating Bitcoin price, along with increases in computer efficiency, has slowed the cryptocurrency's energy footprint growth rate to just 20% per month so far this year. If that keeps up, Bitcoin will consume all of the world's electricity by January 2021. But wait a minute. How does, an, how does a currency... Because How does a value system? I, I can tell you because to to generate a coin, you it's, it's basically a math problem that requires supercomputing. Simple. Dozens of Canadian-made or imported products, including baby bibs, mats, and plank blankets, contain chemicals with links to cancer and hormone-related illnesses. Two-thirds of 137 items tested contain PFOAs and PFOS, both banned in Canada and internationally. That was a study done by NAFTA, the NAFTA Environmental Protection Service. If you, if you knew there was such a thing, I didn't. The number of air conditioners worldwide is predicted to soar from 1.6 billion units today to 5.6 billion units by mid-century. Stop mid shopping! If left unchecked, by 2050, air conditioners will use as much electricity as China does for all its activities today and finally researchers have measured the human poople poople <laughs> what how big was that poople research that was a really big poople over there a lot of them too oh look at all stop, the pooples stop stop researchers have measured the human pupil upon gaining insight into an object it is known that pupils dilate and narrow to adjust the amount of light entering the eye and that emotional state affects the extent of dilation and narrowing. This study, released yesterday, indicates that dilation extent varies depending on if inspiration occurs, and that dilation occurs before inspiration. It was found that the pupils of the experiment participants had dilated before they reported inspiration, which predicted inspiration thereafter. But which came first? Bitcoin <clears throat> set to use all the electricity in the world in just three years time. What's going to happen is the entire universe is going to be driving Uber and spending Bitcoin and we're just going to lapse into a crypto life. That was a depressing news show. It was. I'd like to go to the good news of the weekend. The marriage it, of a black Prince woman, Harry to an African-American woman. The marriage of a black woman to a large number of the frozen chosen sitting there with expressions on their face like they'd bitten into pieces of rotten meat. And in honor of the empire, we'd like to share this wonderful song by the great P.J. Harvey, Let England Shake. Oh, a classic.
Welcome back. PJ Harvey, what a great artist. I encourage you all to check out that entire record, Let England Shake, which is, a, I think, a masterpiece, really. It's so what, if, what if everybody in Westminster Abbey, what's it called? Westminster Cathedral. What if they, what if they were all singing Let England Shake together, you know, in the middle of the, I mean, the, the, the coronation Ritual has now opened up. We but can it, do anything now. It's anything. great for the bloodline. It's great for the blood. Stand Shake it up. by me. You know, we can do anything. I, I need to introduce our wonderful guests today. Welcome back. I'd like to introduce our guests today. Mark Noonan and Ben Shepard, authors of Brooklyn Tides, The Fallen Rise of a Global Borough. Uh, his research interests are in five overlapping areas. Ready? Social movements, community organizing, sexual politics, labor, and social work practice. And we also have with us his writing partner on a most recent book, Mark Noonan, who teaches writing at and urban literature at New York City College of Technology. I welcome you both. And I'd like to just read this little quote. Mark and Mark, Ben. Ben. Uh, <laughs> social workers do not just study poverty. We aim to, to help to do something about it. From housing to AIDS activism the settlement to the anti-apartheid movements, there's a long tradition of social workers participating in a wide range of movements which bridge the gap from individual to community needs. Much of the process begins with a healthy home and a meal. Social work and human services are about helping to create healthy communities. This is my life's work. This is Ben Shepard's life's work. 
creating healthy communities. And I would have to agree with him uh, that, that as the 20 years I've known him, that has been his life's work. I've, I've, there's no one you will see at, an, at a rally more often than Ben Shepherd. But Ben, I'd like to just start by asking you what your favorite place on earth is. Well, some healthier communities than others. My favorite place on earth right now, it's Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn. Glad to be here. Yeah, he's got the here and the now. That's where we are he right now. He didn't even hesitate. Boom. You know, he, he didn't think. You know, some people just think it's a surprise question. And sometimes people just freeze, you and, know, and deer, in the, deer in the headlights. But I mean, not Ben. Slick beach, Ben. Inch Beach in Ireland. That's a pretty good surfing beach. All right. So, All Ben, right. you've written extensively about the concept of play, the, the phenomenon of play. Can you just talk a little bit about that conceptually and then also how play serves as a tool for activism? Well, in this hallowed chambers of the, the commons where we read capital every week, um, you know, we, you know, Marx's study is alienated labor. And uh, Herbert Marcuse posits there, beyond means of necessity, we find something free when we play. And so uh, there has to be more than means of necessity. We have to be able to, you know, paint the streets red. We have to be able to sing. We have to be able to ride naked. We have to be able to enjoy being alive for a little while with no purpose except for we're alive and breathing. Amen. And, and uh, so play is that brief moment of freedom. And I think we don't have enough of that feeling. And, every, and kids can teach us a lot about that feeling if we can let the kids go out there and have a little time without their parents around breathing down their necks. They can actually problem solve and figure out and create their own world and so we could learn a little bit from that that's where why did Marcuse say that play happens after the necessities are accomplished? It's beyond the means of necessity something outside of work outside of paying for rent outside of but the division of work and play is an old uh you know screwy european concept that is there play in work we draw our inspiration from walt whitman and the beginning of song of myself you know i celebrate myself and so he celebrates the workers, he celebrates um, you know, the, the, the art, he celebrates the people, um, but he begins with celebration, and he, he begins with play, he begins, you know, he connects the two. And he loafs. He loafs. He loafs. At the, in that first line, he That's loafs right. and That's celebrates right. himself. Well, so I, know that beyond, the, I know uh, that the poet He's got a full play. stomach, apparently. I know point. the poet can play in work, but can the worker play in work? I mean, I would always say we have to find our little subtle resistance, you know, the, the weapons of the week. There's always forms of resisting uh -huh. uh, the, the work day. And I think uh, resisting the, the hyper controls of the work day. And that's why labor movements are important. And individuals can always find a way to create forms of abundance, even in their daily experience. But it's hard. It's oppressive. And I think that's, that's the big challenge that we all face is just um i mean freud would say if we we better sublimate that desire into work or else you're going to be you know you're going to all be out there one of the big differences between um uh, one of the big uh, one of the key items about activism in in retail environments is that the big monoculture stores the the people who work there don't seem to be having fun. Yeah. And, but sometimes you go down to, you know, your, uh, your local family-owned um, store or shop or, or restaurant or uh, 
mechanic shop, and they're singing and joking, and uh, it's not just them. It's Their it's kids. your experience of them. You go yeah. in there, and you're you're having a good time. Absolutely. Go into a monoculture, and what they try to do is they have alienated people who don't want to be there working for usually not very much money. They're not organized usually, and then and then they they pummel you with advertising featuring smiling actors smiling actors with unblemished skin coming down upon you you go into a chase lobby it's it's depressing everybody's depressed everybody in the whole bank's depressed but you've got big actors in photographs looking at you they're writing out checks in the photos and they're very happy. And, sp- and I remember I remember some of the sort of clerks at Starbucks or at the Disney store calling in, Reverend Billy's in the store again. <laughs> and not ha- and I thought this is funny guys, this is funny. We're here disrupting your day. We're not going to break anything. Have some fun. Let's come on. I mean, like, how much are they paying you? We're you standing on to... the chairs. We're singing. Yeah, come mean, on. <laughs> and nobody can hear Reverend Billy half the time because his store absorbs your voice. It's kind of funny. But I would, yeah, I would also. I mean, you remind me of the other great Whitman poem that we talk about. Um, I hear America singing, and it's about working while singing. Uh-huh. And a large part of the book, you know, it traces um, the beginning of Brooklyn as a place of work and meaningful work, and the type of work that you know you own your labor a little bit more. You know, it's a little bit romanticized, but you know, the the, the tides of industry have brought in these big corporate entities that have pushed out the local bookstores, you know, the mom and pop stores, and we talk about that. But at the same time, there are you know. In us, um, small industries coming back. Um, Brooklyn is be- becoming known for you know a guy that makes he spends three years to make a single knife, you, you, you know, yeah. um, and uh, you know local you know um, um, making coffee beans or or it, it, there there is that 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 well, that return. Yeah, alienated labor. You can actually care about what you're making. That's really powerful. So let's just go back and introduce this book you're talking about. So Ben and Mark have written a book called uh, Brooklyn Tides, which is about globalization and Brooklyn. And it, it traces several uh, waves of activism that go through Brooklyn. A lot of it related to gentrification, I would say, right? And rezones and uh, big uh, urban planning designs. Um, so just tell us a little bit about the book, just briefly. Look, we, when we were all getting arrested at the Disney store in 1999, right after Buy Nothing Day, one of our, as, as I was getting arrested with you, I. I said, it's my civil right not to live in a shopping mall. And uh, our prophecy Amen. in 1999 was that there were concentric circles expanding out from the Disney store, colonizing our consciousness. And, uh, colonizing? So, col- colonize, you know, colonizing. Colonizing oh, yeah, yeah. our consciousness. And I'm on a roll here, Billy. Like, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, like, so yeah. I get to Brooklyn in 2000, and because I get priced out of Lower East Side after Esperanza Garden gets bulldozed. And... Um, there's a beautiful garden, Carroll Gardens. It's wonderful, but the same forces that were those those concentric circles that were circulating the Disney store were expanding out to Brooklyn, and it, Brooklyn was rezoned, gentrification on steroids. The same process that was pushing people out of the Lower East Side started that that, that tide of homogen, homogenization followed us to Brooklyn, um, along with many tides, and we had to try and make sense of what were these tides crashing on our shores. The dialectical nature of the these categories that were beyond our imagination. I think gentrification stops even being a meaningful word because it's said so much that we don't even know what this means. Is it displacement? It's still a clash. It's a clash of colors. It's a clash of forces. And we were trying to say, what could a people's history of Brooklyn be? 
And I think that's a peop- that that's a question we're still trying to ask ourselves. Sure, I would also add. You know, we focus on also the good, the bad, and the ugly of globalization. And we gave a great, uh, we had a great um, uh, uh, discussion at Greenlight Books, the community bookstore in Fort Greene. And um, um, I had recently come back from Germany, giving a, a, some series of lectures, and I actually talked about the book. And you see the the, the force of globalization happening everywhere. And um, I actually showed pictures of a Starbucks. And 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 Strasbourg and Antwerp and and Mainz and I talked about you know we often talk about the, the effects of globalization uh, the the effects the negative effects uh, as homogenization and sameness but on the other hand one also can think of the, the global flow of ideas across borders in a positive way um, something that Kwame Appiah calls cosmopolitanism and I I point out that there there was a, a white uh, German male reading a can book you, called. Can American. you say that again a yeah, little sure, more yeah. slowly? There was that author's name, that writer's name. Yeah, Kwame Appiah, and he uh. has a, a book that came out in 2006 called Cosmopolitanism. Uh. And his his point is that you can look at globalization in, 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 in multiple ways, and that humans have agency, and they can choose. People across the globe can now have um, 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 progressive ideas. They can access them. And take them on. And I, I had the um, anecdote of being on a bus, and there is a white young German male reading um, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's um, Americana, mm-hmm. which is a, a novel by a Nigerian who comes to America that talks about race from an African perspective. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about this, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, what was this white German male reading this book? You know, four, and I and I was thinking about how our book, you know, um, it's not just about Brooklyn. At the talk yesterday, people were talking about how this is happening in Detroit. This is happening, um, um, you know, in, in places across the globe. So we're arguing for um, progressive values, you know, that 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 pertain not just to Brooklyn, but that 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 we are all fighting for the same things in, in making places livable. This um, is and, this. There's a possibility. Yeah. That, you know, we're Brooklyn optimists. That we. There's a possibility for sustainable urbanism here. We see it. We practice it. We ride our bikes. We walk and talk to our neighbors. There's community gardens, and some of them are getting bulldozed, but we're creating more community gardens. We have participatory budgeting. We have an engaged populace. We beating well, back some of it. And but I would say, like, I would ask the stores. question: What what do we do when a place like when East New York is being gentrified? What do we do when we imagine the future of our children and know that? unless they have certain lifestyles, they won't be able to live in the place they grew up in. What do we do about the displacement? Because it, I think it's, you know, we can talk about it on a cultural level. We can talk about literature moving across borders. We can talk about, uh, you know, the common threads that we have with an intellectual class in another country. But but where are people going to live? Look, you, this is a city where people fight. And this is one of, this is a fight. Housing is a, the human right, fight, fight, fight. And I think, you know, resistance is a powerful part of this thing. As our good friends in Picture the Homeless point out, there's plenty of housing. There's actually plenty of housing. It's a matter of getting into that housing and people resisting real estate, electing politicians that aren't owned by real estate. I mean, the third rail of New York politics from Giuliani to Koch to de Blasio. It's the same administration of pro-real estate agenda. We have to change that paradigm. And I think community organizers are helping us point to a different direction. And there are, there's housing works and there's there's uh, flatbush equality. And we I don't have an answer as much as to mm-hmm. say we can find places to live. We can make this work. I would add that Ben does have it. The book does offer answers. And this question of inevitability is flows in the you know broken ties 
you know, we call it, you know, the fall and rise of Brooklyn tides, even though it looks these these globalization tides are impossible to resist. And I love um, the, the point that Ben makes in the book that you can actually, you know, humans have agency and you can win small battles and small, ba- small, win- small battles, victories can lead up to big wins. It's kind of a quote. And I also think of the theorist uh, Paul Jay who actually say, you know, we control our spaces. We, we are in control. And I think that um, it's very difficult, you know, our book doesn't, uh, you know, portend to, to solve the issues, but I do believe it's a mindset, you know, to have people think we control our spaces. In, in the area where I gave a book talk yesterday, the Fort Greene area, next week they're going to um, knock off the, the zoning laws and they're going to allow, um, you know, the, the condos to, to, to go there. And, and then there's a person handing out a leaflet and, and, and saying, you know, we need to organize and, and fight this. And it, and, it, and it feels inevitable. And, you know, we have a progressive, allegedly progressive mayor, de Blasio, right? He says, you know, f- you know for the first no. time. Right, but that's yeah. the reality he isn't. And he's actually in cahoots with, you know, the real estate developers. And these things are happening beneath our noses. And I think the book calls attention in part to, to pay, paying attention, um, 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 ta- um, g- 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 you know, running for office, Claiming your neighborhood and, and and Ben's stories of you know activism in the streets are models, you know, are models for this for this fight against what everyone feels is inevitable. But I, but I, traveling in Europe, there are places that you know Europe, you know, obviously more than America. There are cities, you know, that take control of their spaces, and you know we have rebel cities in America. We have, you know, the cities are what are resisting, you know, the, the, the federal decisions of, right. of the moment and, you know, the sanctuary cities. And the cities are the places that need the, the freedom and the legal structures. to. to Let's to, to, run with that word str- sanctuary. Yeah. <laughs> this is a city of friends. We and have I think to the have city of friends as immigrants. Uh, something just a little bit more has to happen in our fight for against the monoculture and, and the elite sweeping in. Uh, financing these enormous buildings uh, uh, and making m- making uh, an environment in which certain kinds of violence uh, is is so well camouflaged, people are not noticing that the immigration police are disappearing when sixty New Yorkers a week uh, that, right in front of our van, noses. When that van tried to pull Ravi out out of ice in January and you guys were all there and we were throwing our bodies in front of that van trying to take Ravi out of town we were noticing and we the resistance we made such a stink they brought Ravi back I mean and I think that kind of lesson is something that friends do for each other Mm-hmm. And Robbie's part of my congregation. Gene Montreval is part of my congregation. His kids come to Sunday school every week, and it took and we put off Gene being deported for ten years. Yeah, and they brought Gene back ten years ago. Brought him back to Judson after we made a stink. So I think, I think the city of friends. That's why I'm a Brooklyn optimist in many ways because uh-huh. there's lots of problems in this world. Mm-hmm. But I do think that you know. We love the color of Brooklyn, and there are many colors of Brooklyn. And I think people, you know, when I teach my class, I have kids from all around the world trying to learn how to share a space together and a dialogue together. And I am pretty excited about seeing what kind of dialogues they create. One of the questions I like to ask professors and people who work with young people is like, where are your students getting their information? 
Well, a lot of our students, I mean, we teach theory and practice. Praxis. Our students are doing internships at Rikers Island. Our students are doing in internships, volunteering with immigrants or working with new alternatives for LGBT youth, and they're talking with people. Mm -hmm. And they're talking about their lived experience. You know Rikers Island? A lot. One of my students told me yesterday at Rikers Island, the women don't have tampons. Yeah, that's a long Really, campaign. really basic. You know, you want to do one thing, <laughs> Raise some money for tampons at Rikers. Yeah, there's a really it's easy way really to there's a really easy way to give money to that fund. You could just go online if you Google tampons Rikers, you'll find ways to give money to them. No, I would also say our students, you know, they live in the neighborhoods, um, you know, on the edges and the ones that are being pushed out. And it's on the top of their radar. They're on the front lines uh -huh. of these forces. And they, they, they have the stories and we try to give them the voices and, and, and suggestions of how to uh, empower themselves and, and how to think about, um, you know, to taking agency. Um, but, they, they, you know, their stories are, are powerful. And, you know, you feel the effects. I mean, last summer I was teaching. Uh, a summer course, and a student came. Uh, the stu a great student suddenly didn't show up. She'd been hit by a bicycle, by by a car on her bicycle. You know, you know, c c coming, coming. You know, just getting riding your bike to to, to school. Um, you know, the, the violence of the you know in in the neighborhoods. They they you know you know oftentimes students aren't in class because they're attending a funeral, right? Right. <laughs> you know, the, and so yeah. um, you know this dialogue. You real you know where we teach. We we learn from our students that these the major the majority of Brooklynites. Are not being served well, and we, what we're part of is getting the majority's voice to be heard. You know, and it's it's you know it's a difficult process. And how does one how do how does one do it is the, is the question. I think it's through dialogue and, and education. Take over community boards, get involved in the political process. Democracy is not a spectator sport. Use your bodies, but stack those meetings. One of the students things our students are learning is you got to win a vote, go stack that meeting. Bring your friends into the room. Community boards, yeah. city council. Yeah, yeah, show up. Show up. I mean, that's how we beat the, that's we, how we kept the bike lane. You know, that's how we beat back Walmart. There were so many people at City Hall Park that uh, opposed to Walmart, they they kicked us. I couldn't even get into City Hall Park cuz there were so many people. So, Amen. it works, right? I think community organizing in this town still work the democratic well, Ben, you have a lot of knowledge about um the aids crisis and act up and i wonder you know i think a lot of people that don't know that history and don't know how effective that organizing was can you just talk briefly about um act up and and how you feel their work um comes down to us now well the the beauty of act up and the pain of act up was that there wasn't the luxury of being theoretically pure there was no theoretical purity in ACT UP. We needed to get drugs into bodies. We needed to get people housing. And we needed to get people uh, health care. And so if Keith Kyler is a discharge planner at, uh, working in, in the hospitals and he sees his clients can't get a place to live when he's, when he's discharging from the hospitals, he starts using direct action to try and get the city and HPD to create housing for people with HIV and AIDS. And at some point, HPD was dragging their feet so much that they brought a lot of furniture to the offices of HPD and blocked the doors. And they sent a memo upstairs saying, well, we've got the furniture. When's the house? Uh -huh. When's the house that we're going to be able to move into? And so Charles Good. King and Keith Kyler all sat blocking the, you know, blocking the doors for HPD. Keith and next thing Kyler. you know, Keith Ke Kyler, Keith keep up the struggle. Keith, Keith Kyler. Kyler. And, uh, and, ACT UP brought in an abundant, joyous, fun element to organizing. I mean, Keith Kyler, who is one of my direct action mentors, um, he, on another case during the Clinton administration, he was blocking the AIDS czar from the Clinton administration 
disrupting her office. And uh, she, as she told at Keith's funeral in 2005, she said, Keith blocked my office all day telling me why I was wrong about AIDS policy. I started paying attention to what he was saying and realizing maybe he had a point. And as they were dragging Keith out of the room, Keith screamed at me, meet me, for gen- meet me later. I'll buy you a vodka cranberry. <laughs> and... Uh, and she met Keith for drinks later. Oh, that's great. And she changed AIDS policies as a result of some of that conversation. So it's not just saying, screw you. It's saying, we have an alternative. Here's a way to create. Housing works. You know, if you get people housing, they can live. Housing is HIV prevention. If you get people, uh, you can get health care if you get housing. You can get, so, so uh, you can get pills into people's bodies if they've got housing. So um, syringe exchange, similar process. You, you saw that 60% of injection drug users have HIV in the late 1980s in New York City. So housing, so housing act, so syringe exchange and housing and uh, harm reduction activists start passing out syringes. And at some point they realize they have to change some systems. And so they call the media and they say, we're gonna be passing out syringes in the Lower East Side on this day. The media comes and takes photographs of them as the people, as the police arrest them for distributing free syringes and that'll prevent the spread of HIV and AIDS. Wow. And they went to court. And they and, won. And they yeah, used the necessity defense. And that's the last time in New yeah. York that anyone was allowed to use the necessity defense. And, and, and we've actually, as a result of that, the HIV rates among injection drug users are down to less than 10%, and it went down from 60%. As a result of that direct action, the city said, this is a good idea, we want to implement this. So I think it's just that idea of, uh, we're not going to be ideologically pure, we're going to engage with power. The idea could not have come through the policy, the traditional policy policy route. That was not happening. Which is reports brought to you by associates who get paid to gather the research right. then it comes to you then in one ear you have your your political consultants and your, uh, the other ear you have the the you know the democratic party chair on the phone with you and and your policy comes forward through all these uh, traditional forces acting on you and and from the street you have a uh, a surreal image yeah. of people living and dying Bam, that's it. Living and dying. And when they, when, they, so when they took over the FDA or the National Institute of Health, and you know, it's, it's a good way to get you moving on moving drugs into bodies when you have hundreds of waves of people getting arrested in front of your building while you're going to work saying, move the, move the medications, move the drugs, get the drugs into the bodies. Let's get some parallel track processing so we can get these drugs into people's bodies. Then you read the people's reports from uh, ACT UP and find out, oh, they've got a good point. This actually would work. So it's also, so it's direct action, but pointing to a solution. And I think that's the important thing. I always say with students, let's pick an issue, let's research that issue, let's communicate around that issue, let's do direct action around that issue, and let's have some fun and some legal solutions around this issue so that you can push it forward. And I think that's the lesson of ACT UP. Well, I, I mean, it's interesting in, in uh. these times to say that, right? Because I feel with so many of our issues, we don't really have, a, you know, a, a policy uh, option. Let's say with immigration, you know, at this point, what, what can we do? The laws are so bad. The policies are so bad. Uh, there's so much opposition um, in, in government. Uh, what can we do? So y- you also look to, to what is possible, right? Mm-hmm. What is possible in this moment um, because I think it, on so many fronts now, the environmental front, regulations uh, with the EPA, 
uh, or deregulations, I should say, that there's so little movement in a progressive direction. So what are we doing instead? It's the mutual aid. That's why the sanctuary movement, you know, is so powerful. Our students do that. They help each other out. The immigrants help each other out. I mean, Uh, you know, their example, a book does focus on an example of example of, you know, of direction, direct action. I was thinking we do, we have a case study of Red Red Hook is an interesting case of the haves and the have nots Mm -hmm. and a history of extreme violence. And there's the Red Hook Community Center. I recently attended a fundraiser to uh, um, to raise court, right? yeah the community court, yeah. but also to raise money to bring uh, the local students to Washington D.C. And as we're as we're looking and thinking about you know the, the stagnation of nothing seems to be happening, you know it, the the there is a youth movement out there, and yeah. that, that's so so that's an example of bring the kids to D.C. Um, support you know let, let them be part of the part of the fight, and these are concrete examples that the book talks about mm-hmm. um, and um, but but right the, the log jam the juggernaut uh, of, of, of the legal structures and politics of dealing with these issues is you know it, it seems impossible to fight through um, and, and you work through the system in the best way you can I mean and sanctuary movement is helping people escorting people to go to their ice check-ins and providing people emotional support for families and legal support uh, the Center for Popular Democracy that's literally filling the halls with Congress with people getting arrested every single day creating opposition I think that I think that these are the these practices um, is that the poor people's March yeah well yeah that's the poor people's March but the Center for popular democracy was working on uh, the budget bill and the and keeping the Affordable Care Act in place uh-huh. last fall uh-huh. it's the Jennifer Flynn who mm-hmm. is an old act up Jennifer Flynn right. and Paul uh, are from act up um, but the poor people's March is is another righteous movement of bodies and I, I think that the we where do you get back into the play part is people having a, a release valve so the despair doesn't consume them. Because mm-hmm. this is really, I mean, a despairing this, is a hard, this is a hard time in, in our history. history. Yeah. And despair isn't going to help us. So laughing it off and dusting yourself off, as my friend who's an immigration lawyer, Amanda, one of, a kid I knew from years ago, said, you know, I'll be here in court tomorrow. I lost today, but I'm going to be back tomorrow, you mother. Pardon me, I'm like back. <laughs> Whoa, you know, what? and uh, and so I think so we have to be able to laugh a little. bit Can you bit take about that um, that uh, off of uh, the FCC? It's fine. It's fine. Mark Noonan, sister Benjamin Shepard. Thank you for being with us here today. Of Brooklyn Thank Tides. Thank you so much for sending joining us, us back today. into the fight. Wonderful book. I Praise enjoyed be. reading it. Locked Thanks arm in arm with our friends. Thank you for sharing with us today. Against the tide. Amen. Awesome. And now, this turning world to Stop Shopping Choir. me.
yes, the Stop Shopping Choir. What a difference Apocalypse makes. It does make a difference. And I think there's a happy version of that song somewhere that we used to sing, but we forgot it and no one can find it now, which is hilarious. <laughs> we were laughing and having a good time yeah. with the apocalypse. Yeah. And well, now- isn't that isn't that just before you go to the extinction um, animal of the day, uh, isn't feeling that the appreciating the apocalypse, isn't that a... a um, a big macro scale version of Walt Whitman's um, kind of American Buddhism where he's at peace with death. Isn't there a We position relationship ourselves there? in in the post apocalypse in the Church of Stop Shopping. We are post apocalyptic. The apocalypse is long behind us. And uh, now we live in a, in mutual aid and survival uh, Anyway. Amen. Wow. And now extinction's got talent. The gray wolf, once common throughout all of North America, but exterminated in most areas of the lower 48 by the mid-30s. Their range now reduced to Canada, Alaska, the Great Lakes, the Northern Rockies, and the Pacific Northwest, which is actually quite a lot of land when you add it up. Um... The gray wolf can go 14 days without eating. They travel in packs of four to seven, led by alphas, the mother and father wolves that track, hunt, and choose dens for the pups or younger subordinate wolves. Wolves, especially alpha wolves, often mate for life. The wolf pups are born blind and deaf and must be cared for until they are mature at about 10 months of age. They have a sense of hearing 20 times sharper than a human's and a sense of smell 100 times keener. A gray wolf can leap 16 feet horizontally in a single bound and can run at top speeds of about 35 miles per hour. And more importantly, they can lope that amazing walk run that they do uh, for many, many hours at six miles per hour. Uh, Wolves play a key role in ecosystem health. They help keep deer and elk populations in check. Um, They are apex predators and are estimated uh, at just seven to 10,000 gray wolves in Alaska, about 3,500 in the Great Lakes region and 1,600 in the Northern Rockies. The gray wolf here howling. Killian, talk to us about Ireland. What's happening there? Uh, well, just uh, this Friday, um, Ireland will go to the polls uh, to repeal the Eighth Amendment in our constitution, which uh, protects the life of the unborn child over that of the uh, woman carrying it. And we've had this uh, amendment in our constitution since 1982, and um, countless women have had to uh, travel to England. It doesn't matter if you were raped. It doesn't matter if there's incest involved. It doesn't matter if your if your unborn uh, fetus is going to die. You're still forced to carry this until uh, 
right until the end. And it's uh, people have died because of this. People have been traumatized. It's it's a horrible, horrible. Uh, it's the strictest uh, abortion laws that there are on the planet Earth at the moment. Um, and we really, we really, really need to change this. Um, and yeah, I just if anyone knows anyone who's Irish, if anyone has any any family, I mean, this is America, so uh, you all have family, you all have relations. So just call call them up and just talk to them, uh, email them. Um, if you have a bit of money, help them get home. It's happening in uh, two days' time. And also uh, take note of the conversation because this is happening in America as well. Uh, abortion laws are getting stricter here too, and it's uh, it's very relevant. So so take note and. Um, Beware, and let's do the right thing on Friday, please. Thank you. Repeal the Eighth Amendment. Repeal the Eighth Amendment in Ireland now. And thank you to all the people campaigning there every day and just working so hard. Thank you. I'd just like to say a word here at the end of uh, today's remarkable gathering uh, with... Mark Noonan, Ben Shepard, Killian Sunderman, Savitri D., and myself. Uh, a conversation about where we live uh, in Brooklyn, and I hope that it, it translated to, I know that it did, translated uh, poignantly and accurately uh, to cities and towns that our listeners are are living in that might not be Brooklyn. Amen. Sometimes I think Brooklyn is, is a borough the size of a continent. Anybody ever get that feeling? <laughs> and it, it might set up a certain chauvinism in us, but uh, I, I, I got very, very drunk one time with, with a man in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Uh, and, and as we sank, sank to the floor, he had persuaded me over the course of the hours that all culture, all meaning, all language originated in the borough of Brooklyn. So, so we have, we have um, uh, right now as we speak uh, these white, long version, you know, like 15-seater little buses versions of vans, white vans, Chevy vans and Ford vans, um, which are crisscrossing through the neighborhoods in Brooklyn and in the other boroughs and cities and towns across this country. Um, these Blackwater USA types who, who are working for the Immigration Customs Enforcement, ICE agency, are going into people's homes. Uh, they're tracking them in their uh, trips to the grocery store, to the hospital, to the courts, they arrest people in the hallways of courts when people are going to update their visa with a, with, with a judge. Um, they won't make it because they'll be arrested on their way there. Somehow they'll get inside information that they're, they're uh, the, the, the residents of New York. And by the way, being a resident in New York without the documentation that ICE thinks you need to, to be a citizen... Being a resident here is not, in and of itself, illegal. Uh, so that is something to, to uh, confront these people with. But that is going on right now in our, in our city. That is a part of the tide of gentrification. It's a part of the tide of, of benumbing monoculture. It's a part of the tide of our identical gestures, bowing over a square of light in the palm of our hand. Uh, 
It's happening right next door. We're not looking up. We're not noticing. We uh, in the Church of Stop Shopping uh, have been struggling for years to get people to, to see the invisible, like glyphosates in Monsanto's Roundup, like neonicotinoids uh, coming from the Bayer Company killing the honeybees. We've been trying to get people to, to, to see the invisible. But now, now uh, since one of the members of our choir was seized by ice, we were the last, last six months or so, we've been concentrating on getting people not to see the invisible, but to notice the visible. It's right there in front of us. We, we need to see the crime against a neighbor and then place our body between these traumatized uh, young men coming back from racist wars in the Mideast, between them and, and our neighbor, placing our bodies there, facing, facing these people who think that they're working for this country, facing them and saying that this, these are my friends, this is my neighbor. You cannot do that here. You must take me as well. If you do this and you're a citizen, you have a great deal of power. And I hope people listening to me today, wherever you are in the United States, remember that you have power as, as a citizen of the world, as a human being. You give sanctuary by the proximity of your physical presence. You sanctify. You are making a, sa a sacred place. That's more than a safe place. It's a sacred place. It's a safe place with power. You make that. You make that. You have that power. Together with your neighbor who looks back at you and is Im immediately empowered by what you're doing. The two of you together. A city of friends. Love Alleluia. This, this is the Earth Wants You signing off from the Church of Stop Shopping. Thank you for being with us today, Savitri D. Praise be. I got one final question, okay? I really like this episode of the podcast, but I want to listen to all the other episodes. Is there anywhere where this is available online? You can find all of our previous episodes at revbilly.com slash radio. They're all there. Or you can go to SoundCloud and, again, do that wonderful search, Rev Billy. You'll find it in a second, and it's all there. Amen. <laughs>